You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. Today I'm talking to James Stewart. Normally I just sort of wander into these conversations, but I wanted to give James Stewart a formal introduction. So here we go. James B. Stewart is the Dean of Investigative Business Journalist. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning author who's worked as a lawyer and editor at the Wall Street Journal. He's now at the New York Times. He's written close to a dozen books. Are we at a dozen yet? We're at 11. 11, close to a dozen, including Disney Wars. That's the definitive story of the beginning of the Bob Iger era. And he's the co-author of Unscripted, The Epic Battle for a Media Empire and the Redstone Family Legacy. Now, that's as formal as an introduction as I give, James Stewart. Well, thank you. I'm flattered. Thanks for coming. I was just telling you off, Mike, I've been hearing about you for years because if you're in business journalism, you hear about James Stewart or Jim Stewart, his rules for how to do reporting. You read his books. Plenty of people I know who listen to this podcast have read Disney Wars, among your other work. And so I was delighted you came in to talk about this book you co-authored with Rachel Abrams. It's about the end of the Redstone era, the end of the Les Moonves era, beginning of a new era of, of a much diminished CBS Viacom empire. What did you want to do going into this book? Because some of these topics have been covered before. I've had Kichagi come in and talk about her Redstone book. Um, you've done reporting on this stuff in the New York Times. What did you hope to get out of a book like this? Well, you're right. Plenty of this has been made headlines and from you know tabloids to business reporting. And yet, this was an incredible opportunity because you know working with Rachel, we got a lot of confidential sources who handed over a trove of, you know, firsthand information, texts, emails, transcripts, like I've never encountered in my decades of reporting. So we had that to start with. But secondly, it's, I didn't use the word epic lightly. It's, uh, it's an, an unbelievable story. It's as close as I think I'll ever have the opportunity to come to writing a nonfiction novel. And I hope that it resonates on many levels. It is, of course, we kind of thought originally it was kind of, yes, it's an end of an era. It's the Me Too movement meets the boardroom, a boardroom, you know, which is not in the Me Too era. But it's so much more than that. It's a, it turned into a, this family drama, you know, an incredible look at a very troubled and complicated relationship between a rich and powerful father and his daughter. I hope people will read it as, uh, you know, a very a significant morality tale, an entertaining drama that lifts the lid up and reveals the truth about our time. This is a cliche to say about a book like this, or this book in particular, especially once you see the, the cover of this book. But if you watch Succession, and I think anyone who listens to this podcast does, and you want to see a real-life version of this, this is the book. Your cover literally is sort of lifting from the Succession art <laughs> right. um, quite intentionally. You say it's a morality tale. There's lots of villains. Sumner Redstone is a villain. Les Moonves is a villain. Do we have a hero in this story? Because in, in one of the things that I love about the Succession TV show is all the characters are awful in their own special way, and you can't you can root for one or the other, but you can't say that one's a better person than somebody else. Well, look, nobody's perfect, but I think Sherry Redstone, you know Sumner's daughter, is, is the hero of the story. I mean, 
she confronts and then surmounts one incredible obstacle after another. I mean, the scheming women who were living in the mansion with her father, you know, the surrogate son who was running uh, Viacom in the Paramount studio, Les Moonves, who pretended to be her friend and ally and then plotted this, you know, breathtaking betrayal and corporate coup against her and her father and the family members. Um, and she emerges at the end, you know, on top. And I have to tip my hat to her. She was, you know, and there's a sad scene at the very end after father's died where she turns to one of his confidants and says, do you think my father really loved me? And, you know, after all that, she still didn't know. Sumner Redstone is a difficult person is the way we used to describe him. Now we can just say he's a pretty venal and awful person. But he... And one thing I think it's hard to sort of understand if you start this book without previous knowledge of Viacom and, and CBS was really was one of the dominant media moguls for a long stretch. But when cable was its most powerful, he was basically one of the most powerful men in the world. He's a former lawyer who built up this media empire, not because he's got a love of entertainment or a real sense of how any of this stuff works, but loves money and power and, and sort of doesn't stumble into this empire. But, but I don't think he had a lot of foresight into what he was building. Well, he was certainly, he was ruthless. He was competitive. He had to win at any cost. I mean, it's really remarkable that the family business started with a couple of drive-in theaters in the Boston suburbs. Hence the national he amusements. He claimed to have, you know, invented the multiplex. And he was, a, you know, he was a brilliant businessman. You know, he mastered every detail. He knew the box office, every theater, you know. But the fact that he was able to then conquer one of the major broadcast networks and CBS, which became the most watched network, and then really his crown jewel, the Paramount Studio, that a that an operator of a drive-in movie theater ended up owning Paramount. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was that was climbing Mount Everest for him. And you start the book near the end of Redstone's life when it's evident to everyone around him and in the press that he is in decline. Uh, Vanity Fair is written. Um, I, I remember I used to... Uh, work on the periphery of Vanity Fair, and Sumner Redstone was mad one year that he'd been demoted in the new establishment list. <laughs> and the story we were told was he, in an effort to sort of get get back up, he invited basically uh, Vanity Fair to come profile him. It's a devastating profile by William Cohen. But it was clear, anyone who could see, you could hear Sumner Redstone on these earnings calls. He, he just sounded like he could barely croak out a couple sentences. Can you imagine another scenario where someone who's that who has that much power but is obviously in decline is allowed to sort of continue to run at least as a figurehead of business for that long? It was it was a long stretch? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's no question that he he was in both mental and physical decline late in his life, and we did gain access to a confidential medical evaluation of him, which you know for people who knew him at his peak, it's sad to read it. I mean, he. It, it goes into great detail of, of his various impairments. But yet he falls into this kind of gray area. You know, it's not always black and white. Is someone mentally competent, which is what the law looks for, not mentally competent? And you see in the story, if it's in someone's interest, they say he is mentally competent. If it's not in their interest, they say he's not. But, you know, he was in some sort of gray area. And I, one of the things I found striking is that here he's a billionaire, immensely powerful. You would think he would have people protecting him. He would have the lawyers. He would have the, the business executives. But the they're assistants. all carving out their own piece of it. Yes, but when you're that rich, they're all maneuvering, you know, to get a piece piece of it. And so he's completely unprotected. I mean, he has these these two women living in his mansion with him who siphon off at least $150 million, probably many more millions than that, and came close to like taking over the whole empire from him. He was very vulnerable. He was not entirely of sound mind. They managed to cut him off from 
his family, the lawyers, I mean, they have a lot to answer for, in my view. They did very little, if anything, to protect him. And you can make the same argument about his CEO at Viacom, um, Philippe Dumont, who did what Sumner Redstone wanted him to do, which was do stock buybacks and not much else, and basically missed the entire digital and streaming era. And if you really wanted to contort yourself, you could say, well, he saved himself some money by not buying things like MySpace. But that wasn't the intent. They were just sort of staying stagnant throughout this entire era of turmoil in media, and, and Viacom remained unchanged. It is much, much weaker for it now. Well, yeah, the the, the mismanagement there is is uh, you know is appalling, and I think you know Sumner want, it was obsessed with the stock price. You know, he had the the stock ticker in his bedroom, so mm -hmm. he could like watch it all the time. And then for a while, it was kind of working. You know, Domon was selling things and doing the financial engineering and um, cutting costs, and it did go up for a while and, until it didn't. And then you know the, there was no creative energy in the place. I mean, their idea of a strategy at Paramount Pictures, which was doing terribly, was to cut the number of movies they made, shrink, you know. And yet, you know, this I've heard that I've covered Hollywood a long time. And newcomers come in there and they say, well, I don't get this. You know, we why don't you just make hits? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they say that over and over again. And, you know, you can't just make hits. Nobody has come up. No AI will ever come up with a formula that only produces produces hits. You've got to make a lot of movies to strike gold. One of the things that was interesting to me about your story is the fact that Sherry Redstone, instead of owning and running Viacom CBS, came close to, to selling her stake in the company for a right. billion dollars. What's the alternate scenario where Sherry Redstone doesn't take the company over? Who went, what, what becomes of Viacom CBS today? Is it split up into pieces? I mean, she succeeded, as you see in the story, in, in merging CBS and Viacom together into what is today Paramount Global. And there's no question they need a greater scale that got them greater scale, but I don't think anyone thinks they've got enough scale to compete yep. in the world of Amazon, Netflix, Disney, Disney Plus, the big streaming, you know, service. There's fierce competition going on there. The costs are going through the roof. The stock is down way, you know, way down. So I, I think the consensus is that it will be sold either in pieces or in one chunk. And why do you think – this comes up whenever I have someone on to talk about M&A uh, in media and we always – this is an obvious takeover candidate. It's an obvious sale candidate. Does Sherry Redstone believe that? Because that seems to be one of the major questions. Well, does she think she can make it on her own? Well, it's an inter interesting transformation in the story where she comes into the, the story, which is really where the plot begins. She's forced in really kind of against her wishes. And then by the end, she she enjoys running. She enjoys being kind of chairman. And, you know, she's been doing a pretty good job. You know, they – they have some hits. They did Top Gun Maverick. They've got Yellowstone. So she kind of likes it, I think. She likes being at Sun Valley and feels comfortable there now. And she's you know, one of the few women in a yeah. position like this. That said, she's openly said that at the right price she would sell. She would be, I think, also happy to go back and spend more time with her children. And then the next generation, as far as I can tell, has no burning desire to be running this giant media company. So she, this is an emotional thing for her to have wrested control of the company and, and, and to have it and to carry on her father's legacy and a weird whatever weird psychology is involved there. But she is prepared to walk away at some point. Yeah, I think there's no question about that. And by the way, she did have to step in. I mean, to save the family name in a way. I mean, the, the two women living with him, Sydney and Manuela, who Sherry always refers to as S and M, they were not only trying to take over the company, they were trying to take over the family burial plot in Sharon, Massachusetts. And Imagine that, the idea of these these interloping women who'd seize control of him and, and 
were on the brink of taking over the empire, then having their remains buried there with Sherry excluded. I mean, nothing could be more symbolic. Again, like I said, I'll never have an opportunity to write something so novelistic. You, you just could not make this up and the symbolism of that. Matt Bellany wrote a uh, from from Puck wrote a, a review of your your book in the Washington Post over the weekend, and the, I'm paraphrasing, but it said something like, "Is it possible to be this skeeved out while you're reading a nonfiction book about your media empire?" And the answer is yes. It's tremendous. Is there an alternate history for Viacom CBS where instead of being lapped by the Netflixes of the world, they they are able to keep pace with them, or are they always going to be too small to be real competitors? You know, the whole streaming uh, field is evolving very rapidly. And thinking has gone from the fact that there are going to be like a handful of survivors here that are massive. Yep. And there's no question it's a scale business. You spend this kind of money, obviously, the more subscribers you have, the more you can amortize those costs. It's a very straightforward economy of scale business. But if there can only be maybe three of those or whatever, then is there room for something else? And I think there is an evolving sense that there might be room for some niche participants here. I think it's interesting, for example, that uh, Warner Brothers Discovery was going to merge the Discovery mm-hmm. streaming thing with the HBO, and now they're they're abandoning that. Well, they still are going to do that, right? They're just going to allow Discovery to exist as a, as a standalone. Right. But I think that's significant in the sense that, you know, the idea that you just throw everything together and bigger yeah. is better, that's being rethought. Um, and I, I think most people feel, you know, the, the kind of the second tier, which I would call, uh, you know, Peacock, Paramount Plus, uh, you know, HBO, Max, they're they're gonna they're kind of caught in the middle at this point. They either have to get really big or they're gonna have to go niche. What was the most revelatory, uh, salacious tidbit you found that you didn't know about going in? I, I really don't even know where to start. I, I've said several times I'm so happy I had a co-author working with me, Rachel Abrams, because you know we were working in the pandemic and you know there, you didn't really have anybody to turn to when you discover these things. So we were on the phone like every day, and there's a whole scene in there where. Sumner in one day sells all of his CBS stock, which he'd vowed he would never sell. And then he transfers $90 million. He does a wire transfer of $90 million into the bank accounts of these these two women. I was like, what? <laughs> How does that happen? I, mean, that, I was astonished by that. that. This whole character, George Pilgrim, who had an affair with Sydney, and that's what blew up the whole thing. I mean, that's all jaw-dropping. I mean, the guy turned out to be He's a convicted felon. He went to jail. He was a con man. He pretended to be the grandson of William Randolph Hearst. Of all the people in the world she could have had an affair with, she chooses this guy? She wanders into an affair with a classic grifter, which then kicks off the book. Completely. I mean, the book really opens with their meeting. And I, I've often wondered, like, okay, who's conning who in this little meeting at the pool deck of the Peninsula Hotel? Anyway, that's all That's all astonishing. Then I could never understand at CBS why Les Moonves, the much revered, very successful chairman, decides to betray Sherry and launch this civil war to try to strip them of their voting control when he has to have known that he had these dark secrets in his past. And then we got all these texts and emails that shows him agonized. I mean, he of course he knew that and he's twisting in the wind, but he couldn't lose face with the board and he's saying to his colleagues, you know, there's no way out here. There's no choice for me. He descends into drunken incoherence and you see it in these texts and emails. You know, my jaw is just kind of hanging down. You do reproduce those drunken texts and, and they're worth seeing because we've all sent those. Generally, we're just not running CBS when we do them. You know, there is, there is some salacious uh, stuff in there, but 
you know, it's part of the story. It's part of life. You know, I just said, let's just ride it. You know, <laughs> I did want to ask you about Les Moonves. Uh, up until the very end of his career, he he was one of the most successful people in media. Turned around CBS, seemed to be the one C, one CEO in media who had a real sense of programming. And even if the kind of people who listen to those podcasts weren't watching CBS programming, it was enormously popular around the country. It was really the only successful broadcaster. He was really, really good at his job. And then it turns out he's got a terrible, terrible backstory involving the abuse of many women over many years. Was it a coincidence that he happened to be part of the Redstone Viacom empire and had those proclivities or uh, proclivities is the wrong word, had that backstory or could that have happened? Could he have been successful and that odious in any other big media company? Well, there's no question, I think, that in any major company, the culture really starts at the top and the top of Sumner Redstone and his behavior is appalling and abominable and his attitude towards women is terrible, starting with his own daughter, but also, you know, to many other women that he, you know, swept into his orbit. And again, more jaw-dropping things that he was hitting on and trying to date and did date his grandson's girlfriends. I mean, that's a whole story in itself. But, you know, again, jaw-dropping, Les Moonves, I'm sure felt there were no restraints on him in this environment. And, you know, to the point where he had a woman on the payroll at CBS whose desk was outside his office who administered oral sex to him whenever he wanted it in the office. You know, that came out in confidential testimony that we got we got access to. And, and again, what? Really? I, you know, look, I, at this point in my career, I think nothing would shock me. And it, yeah, I, time and again in this, I saw something like that. I, 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 just, I just can't believe this. We'll be right back with James Stewart. But first, a word from a sponsor. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I want to switch gears and ask you about a couple uh, stories and, and other companies you've covered. Let's start with the news first. Uh, Bob Iger just sort of settled a, a, what we call them now, a activist shareholder right. fight. Right. We used to call them green mailers with uh, Nelson Peltz. Wanted changes made at Disney. Iger sort of made some of those. The real story is is Iger's departure from Disney and his, his return. Like I said, you wrote this book, Disney War, which is really about the end result being Iger taking over Disney. No one took Bob Iger seriously, I think, at the time when he took, up, took it over. Now he's revered as this master CEO. What lessons do you think Bob Iger learned from his initial succession story that are going to influence what he's doing now? And why hasn't Bob Iger been able to pick a successor successfully? It seems to be the one big blemish in his career. I'd have to agree with that. I mean, Bob Iger's track record was really remarkable there. And, you know, his ability to make acquisitions, at least until the, the Fox deal, was, you know, also really remarkable. He's, he's a great communicator. Shareholders love him. Wall Street loves him. Gets so, credit yeah. for not making some deals. Didn't came very close yeah. to buying Vice. Didn't do it. Came close to buying Twitter. Didn't do it. Those would have been terrible yeah. deals. So it's it's fascinating to me that he he wants to come back. I mean, he's putting his reputation on the line. It can't get any better, mm -hmm. really. I mean, already 
this whole pelts dust up has you know put the Fox acquisition under a pretty you know harsh spotlight, um, which was one of that was his kind of last last big deal. But in terms of succession, oh, that is a you know it's a serious issue. That's another thing that Pelts was highlighting. You know, he was, I guess, I say like when Michael Eisner was the CEO and he was number two, he was kind of like an abused child. Eisner was plotting to get rid of him when the coup finally happened and Iger survived. And then Iger turned around and, you know, he'd get a successor, you know, Tom Staggs, suddenly fired. Kevin Mayer, he's fought, pushed out. And then the person he did choose, you know, floundered and, you know, the board got rid of him recently. So, you know, you have to wonder about some of these CEOs. Did they deliberately, do they feel threatened, you know, when, when somebody really competent is coming up behind them? Evidently. And yet, anyone in business school will say the ability to choose a good successor is one of the greatest skills that a CEO needs. Right. And now it's specifically his job, right? He said, and we can roll our eyes because he said he's going to leave in the past and stays around. But he said, I'm, I'm leaving in two years. I have to right the ship. And part of that is finding a successor. Is that plausible for him to do in two years? I think most people feel no. I mean, one of the pelts said, you know, I'm going to hold you to that. We want you out in, in two years. I think that's one of the reasons they didn't want pelts in there. You can't do that much in two years. You know, people were saying to me, the earnings just came out last week. And he was like, oh, there's, it's going to be dramatic. There's going to be a big change. It's going to cut costs. And I was saying, well, wait a minute. You know, a company like Disney is at least it's an aircraft carrier. You, you can't turn that yeah. thing on a dime. It's going to take time. And even Grooming's successor is, is going to take some time. So it wouldn't surprise me if the two years slips to three, you know, four. I mean, again, he said he was leaving before and then he didn't. So he, he doesn't have a lot of credibility when it comes to his sell-by date. How much do you think Bob Chapek's problem were specific to Bob Chapek that, you know, lack of t uh, talent management expertise, a lot of missteps? And how much of it was Bob Chapek was following – a path laid by Bob Iger, which was going all in on streaming, spend a lot on this stuff. Um, and then lo and behold, you have giant losses, which again, back when, when Iger was leaving, that was still the playbook for Netflix and everyone was trying to create a Netflix and now that doesn't look good. So is it fair to to blame Bob Chapek for all of that or is some of this Bob Iger's mess that he now has to clean up? So well, well, you can't blame Bob Chapek for the fact that investor sentiment abruptly turned against the streaming model, which was spend whatever you have to do, to, and all we care about is more subscribers. Yep. That's not his fault. And that that hit every one of these companies, by the way. It wasn't, wasn't just Disney. Can't blame him for that. Now, I've never personally met JPEG. The word is, you know, he had little to no EQ. He was not out there, you know, hobnobbing with directors and stars and wasn't comfortable in that world, didn't seem to particularly enjoy it. Seemed and to lose had, the company as well. He had enemies work. inside the company. The reorganization he tried to do led some very powerful executives inside Disney to turn against him. They were back-channeling to Iger all the time. Then there was this extraordinary period where Iger was you know, criticizing Chapek to anyone who would listen, even though he was the one who anointed him. And Chapek, in turn, was you know battling against this campaign to Iger to undermine him. So it was. it's been a very you know, unpleasant situation there. People suggested that it's going to be a transformative deal for Disney under that'll be Iger's last move. Do you think he's a buyer or a seller? I think he's, it's hard for him to be a buyer. If you look at the balance sheet, that's another thing that Pelt spotlighted that I've been talking about for years. They they took on an enormous about a, a debt. That's a very highly leveraged balance sheet right now. I don't think they have a lot of firepower there to make a, another big acquisition. Could they sell? Could they sell ESPN? Apparently they've acknowledged that they 
they looked into that. You, you know, there's I think there's a case to be made for that. But they said, no, no, we're not going to we're not going to do that. I, I think the transformative deal is less likely than a lot of people expect. But this is sort of the cards he has to play, and he's just as yeah. Well, I mean, his strategy that he unveiled, you know, last week, and the focus is, you know, is very much on cost cutting, and I'm sure there are costs to be cut. Uh, how far can you go with that in, in this? You know, how much is Netflix going to cut? Again, the idea that all you can make is hits is is an illusion. I want to ask you about Warner Discovery. Um, lots of people have written about that. I've written about it. I've talked to lots of people who have written about it. And you still managed to come out with a piece last year that had anecdotes that I couldn't believe I hadn't heard before. There was <laughs> one where John Stanky, then I think he was officially the CEO of Warner Media, brings in Richard Plepler and, and all the, the remaining generals of the Time Warner Empire and gives them basically a six-page memo or however many pages it was printed out with a list of edicts that they were supposed to sit and read and listen. And I can't believe I had not heard that story. How did you get your hands on that story? <laughs> well, you know, there were six people in the room. So, mm -hmm. of course, people that meet – or maybe there were more. I think there might have been a couple of AT&T people in there as well. So people say, okay, somebody there must have told you that. Well, I can't really say who did, mm -hmm. but you, you can never jump to those conclusions. Um, I mean, obviously, I got a copy of that document that they had to read and and I, a description of that. And so once I was armed with that, with that many witnesses, it wasn't that hard to confirm. Then you go around and say, hey, this memo. Yeah. Says, oh, I mean, yeah, I, I can't believe you got that. No, I, yes. teach, I teach journalism at Columbia. And you know, one thing I tell my students, how do you get people to talk? I said, the more you know the more you can get people mm -hmm. to talk. They can't if you call fishing and saying, "Oh, tell me an interesting story about John Stanky," you get nothing. Mm -hmm. But if you call in and say, "Okay, I've got this memo." Everybody has to talk. They can't just, you know, you know, brush you off. This is the question I ask everyone about Warner Discovery. I can't get a satisfying answer to my conclusion. And maybe there isn't one, but you tell me. AT&T buys what was then called Time Warner seems pretty evident now that they're big. Even though they talked about Synergy, the big plan was our stock price isn't moving. There's this thing that maybe we can call the next Netflix, and then we could own the next Netflix and get a stock bump from that. And that didn't pan out. But there were lots of obvious problems with that strategy in terms of both the idea that there's going to be Synergy there and the amount of money they were going to need to compete with a Netflix. It was evident from the beginning they'd need many, many, many billions of dollars, which they didn't have, especially once they loaded on debt. So who figured out and how did they figure out one day that they had made a terrible miscalculation? Was there an aha moment for Randall Stevenson, the CEO of AT&T, or for Stanky, his successor? Or did it just accumulate over time that they realized they'd made a terrible mistake? I think there was an aha moment. I, it was not Randall Stevenson who to this day defends the deal and and frankly thought it was a mistake for them to spin it off and they, they should have kept it. and. Just Stuck kept doubling down on the on the strategy, which, by the way, is, is a strategy that has never actually made sense to me. Even I've heard, had people explain it many, many times. Um, but I think a moment came when you know Stanky was CEO of Warner Media was trying to run this. Number one, he never liked it. Two, he didn't get along with any of these people. He didn't like the Hollywood culture at all. He was completely ill suited for that. And then number three. You know, unfortunately for them, they were there when this abrupt change in investor sentiment happened. Not only did they not get the Netflix bump or halo, it went the other direction. They started getting this, you know, their stocks started to be depressed because they have these ballooning costs to, to enter the streaming wars. 
And um, I think he must have woken up one day just saying, I hate this. It's terrible. The trend lines are bad. We've got to get out. And again, what drew me into that story more than any particular anecdote was the flabbergasting fact that AT&T squandered roughly $100 billion of shareholder equity in the course of the DirecTV and, and Warner Brothers fiascos. Yeah. Really astonishing. Again, the DirecTV stuff people don't pay enough attention to, I think. And and it was declining even when they went and bought uh, Warner Media. Yeah, and another, you know, another point that's also vivid in, in Unscripted is what's what's happening here to shareholder democracy? I mean, it, it's not functioning. I mean, there's no accountability here. These these companies, you know, go through this. The board and Unscripted, the CBS board, is blindly, you know ludicrously loyal to Moonbez and believes everything he says and does what he wants. You know, what's the AT&T board been I mean, they, were they just sitting by and watching these billions of dollars go up in smoke? There, I mean, there's no accountability. Do you expect realistically boards to sort of really challenge their CEOs? I mean, they they have a liability, right? They can be sued uh, and you, you often are sued when there's some sort of disaster. But the reality is in most cases, these these guys are rubber stamping their their CEO's decisions. They're appointed by the CEO generally. Even the ones that are independent aren't really that independent. Do you expect realistically to have really active boards really fighting with CEOs of public companies? Well, you should, and that's what these shareholder activists are starting to force. But I mean, you know, boards they can't run the company. I, I get that, but they have to stay informed, and they're really their primary function is to hire the chief executive, and I should say fire the chief executive. And there are some examples of that, but not nearly enough. I mean, what does it take? Look at, look at some of the stuff that's going on. I mean, you have Les Moonves. You know, the New Yorker comes out with two articles showing 12 women claiming to have been sexually assaulted. He also gives confidential testimony of additional elements, and the board doesn't want to, want to suspend it. You him. do have that damning quote from one of the board members saying, well, we all do this. We all did this. I, you know, I was like, what? No, no, I don't think everybody did that. And the same thing, you know, at AT&T, you've got how much more money has to go up in smoke before somebody says, you know, I'm not sure you're earning that, you know, $25 million in pay. <laughs> I don't, something is not working here. I don't have a transition for this, but you did write a fascinating article about Jeffrey Epstein and Bill Gates, even and several people at the Times. How many lawyer hours were spent on that piece? I have to imagine when you have one of the world's richest men and a story about Jeffrey Epstein, who's at that point, I can't remember if he was dead or not, but it had been arrested. Um, he was dead. That that is an incredibly difficult story to publish. It was incredibly difficult. And, I, and I, it does stand out vividly that the PR person for Bill Gates, to say was hostile from, from the beginning, is putting it mildly. That was a you know that was a tough story, and I remember getting all kinds of denials from the Gates camp, and then uh, again you know going to the reporting thing. What really the breakthrough there was I got the photo of Bill Gates and Jeffrey Epstein standing in the foyer of Jeffrey Epstein's mansion. At this point, you could not pretend that they didn't know each other or he'd never been to the house. I mean, but that's what it took, an mm -hmm. actual photograph that nobody could dispute the authenticity of to kind of break through on that. And your story basically was underlying the idea that that even once Epstein's status as a, as a predator had been officially exposed in, in court and in public, that Gates continued to associate with him. Gates and a lot of other people. I mean, that's what I found most interesting about the Epstein story, um, the sordid, you know, underage, 
sucks. I don't know. How, at, at this point in my life, how have I been drawn into all this like weird sex? I never, I never dreamt I would be like writing about all this. But anyway, the the weird underage sex, you know, that's all what it is. It's, you know, very disturbing. But to me, what was so interesting is his amazing ability to surround himself with some of the biggest names in the world of politics and finance. I did another story about Epstein and this cello that he owned. He owned a rare cello. I saw that in the inventory of his assets that the um, trustee put together after he died. And I said, why why does Jeffrey Epstein own this rare cello? And it took me, I think it was over two years before I cracked that mystery. But I did crack the mystery. And again, it all relates to his ability to surround himself with wealthy, powerful people. And his ability to do that was unrivaled. That, that is fascinating. I mean, a lot of people have said, oh, why don't you write a book about Jeffrey Epstein? And, and That I'm, was my question. I have to say, I don't plan to write a book about Jeffrey Epstein. I just can't. I don't think I could spend, you know, this last book took four years. I don't think I can spend that much time dealing with it. I, I just have to, you know, it's just too sordid. But if I did do a book, it would be because – I'm fascinated by his relationship to these powerful people, all, all men, including like Wesley Wexner and their very close, again, mysteriously close relationship, Leon Black. I mean, this is all Bill Gates. This is all fascinating. And nobody's really gotten mm-hmm. totally to the bottom of that. So there's there's work to be done there. Yeah. I, I was hoping you'd say, oh, that's my next book. <laughs> you you uh, went to Harvard Law School. You were a lawyer at Cravath. It's one of the big right. mega New York law firms. That's that's a different career trajectory for most people. Uh, they don't end up going to become journalists and, and being an editor of the journal and then writing books for the Times. What what got you? I know a lot of people who used to be lawyers and got out, but I, I don't know people with your path. What why why aren't you in law today? Well, the short answer to that is an important lesson I learned at Cravath is. The people who did best there, and it was a very competitive environment, loved what they were doing. They didn't just like it or tolerate or find it mildly stimulating. No, they they really loved it. Why did they love it? I can't answer that, but they did. And I realized I don't love it that much. And I said, okay, I've got to do something I love. That gives you such a competitive advantage in the world. And by the way, makes life so much more fun and interesting. And I'd worked in journalism. I'd been editor of college paper. Steve Brill was starting up the American Lawyer right then, which was, you know, fortuitous for me. And I just took a deep breath and said, okay, I'm going to go start go to the startup legal magazine, which was a shock to my, starting with my parents, although they were very supportive. And then I think my, my colleagues at Cravath were also, you know, kind of stunned that, you know, it was a very unusual career path at the time. Does that legal background come into play when you're reporting or do you think you have the same set of tools as anyone who does what you're doing? It has come into play. I mean, it's been an immensely valuable preparation. Every once in a while, somebody will approach me and say, I want to be a journalist. You think I should go to law school? I said, well, I don't know, three intense years of law school to be a journalist. I'm not sure that makes sense, but it certainly worked well for me. I deal with lawyers all the time. I deal with cases. I deal with you know legal documents. There's a lot of it in this book, Unscripted. It's been very valuable. But another thing I've learned is like some people, have, journalists have said to me like, oh, I wish I had the subpoena power. And um, I've often said, you know, you might have it, but people – you really only get information when people want to tell you something or feel they have to tell you something. The subpoena alone, as we've seen in plenty of investigations, it only gets you so far. 
Yeah, there's plenty of cases where someone subpoenaed is still saying next to nothing. If they want to stonewall, they usually can. There's that great footage of, of Bill Gates rocking back and forth while being deposed by uh, the DOJ many, many years ago. You talked about one uh, journalism tip being, you know, have the information before you go to someone or have some of it before you go to someone. I used to work with someone who, who worked with you, told me a Jim Stewart rule was, if you have a good story idea, you better hurry up and go because someone else has it. Can you leave us here with one other reporting or journalism tip? Um, never have a preconceived idea about what the story is. Or you can have one, but don't don't be too rigid about it. And I had to use this in the latest book because my colleague Rachel was spending time with this guy George Pilgrim and was phoning in all this unbelievably fascinating stuff. I'd already written about 100 pages of the book. And I was like saying to myself, you know, I can't believe this. this guy George Pilgrim is taking over the story. This is not the plan. And then I woke up the next day and I said, wait a minute. This is the story. Let George take over the, the story. He's an important character. He sets all this in motion. I threw all that out and I started again. I'd say, I, at first, I was resisting because I thought I knew what the story was. No, never assume anything because the reality is when it's surprising is always so much better than what you usually suspect. Surprises are great. Jim Stewart, great to talk to you. Thanks for coming in. The book Thank is you. unscripted. Thanks again to Jim Stewart for coming in. Like I said, I have been an admirer of his work forever, so it was very cool to talk to him in person in the same studio. Also cool, the fact that I get to work with Jelani and Travis, who edit and produce this show. Our advertisers bring this show to you for free for zero dollars, and you guys make this show work because you listen to it. You tell me what you like. You tell me what you don't like. I'll take it all. Uh, this is Recode Media. We'll see you next week. <laughs>